expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. I know what you're thinking. You never thought we'd get here, but we're here. It's our 100th episode of the Down and Nerdy Podcast Extravaganza. I'd like to thank Stan Lee. I'd like to thank Jack Kirby. I'd like to thank the fans. And also, most importantly, Al down the street who makes the best goddamn chimichangas in the fucking West. <laughs> I'm going to throw Bob Kane in there, too, just for good measure. Oh, yeah. I'm James with him alongside. The Merc with one arm, Nick Battaglia. Dude. It's it's here. It's it's here. Like we joked about it throughout you know our time since we started. You know we want to get past five. We want to get past ten. We're at a hundred, and that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, and just to for anybody that stuck with us through the first episode and beyond. First yes! of all, first of all, if you listen to that first episode and you're still here, uh, we owe you a hug or something because <laughs> uh, I mean cards on the table, guys. We've Behind the scenes, we've joked about this for a long time. I don't think we've really talked about it on the show too much, but I can still remember uh, when we did the first episode, and we, neither one of us really knew. You know, we hadn't really worked together a whole lot before Nick and I, and and we did the first episode, and we both kind of listened to it. I think we were both kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, we were gonna come to each other and be like, "Dude, that wasn't that good." Well, no, it's that thing <laughs> where, like, if you're your first episode. And you're like, oh, that was good. That felt good. You listen to it like, that was shit. Yeah, that blew. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we're both kind of like, ah, uh, so. And then when you, anytime you do something like this, when you have to do that, it's always uncomfortable, especially when it's somebody you haven't worked with before <laughs> yeah. a lot. So you don't know if like, that's going to be it. Not only that, but in real life, we both work at the same place. Right. So. so- be in the same building with one another people yeah. recording and be like, yeah, you need to fix this. I mean, there was, I mean, there was some stuff that we, I mean, a lot of stuff that we looked at from our first episode, like we need to do this a lot differently. And uh, then, I mean, the second episode came along and we, I think we just found our groove. I like how we went from, and I remember a couple of things we talked about, like Spider-Man was like our main topic. Yeah. yeah. Then we did, I know we were talking about the Arkham Knight trailer and then we talked about a real Batmobile. Yeah, and we talked about <laughs> superheroes comics being put in cereal. Yeah. Like, like, yep. like this is it's bad. Like, it's it's like stuff like we've been talking about. Like, what can we do for a hundredth episode before we decide what we were going to be doing? And we're like, well, why not like reboot and like re you know uh, do a riff tracks or whatever of the first episode? <laughs> well, think about this too. In the first episode, what we're reading didn't exist. No. Remember that? We did not do a what we're reading in the first episode. No. So, I mean, there's that. And I still think about some of the stuff that we did uh, on our Facebook page, too. Remember Matchup Monday? Oh, God. Yeah. yeah that, we actually that did got, a Matchup Monday. I think, I think of all of our old, like, theme days, or actually all our theme days in general, meme, or before it became Meme Monday, Matchup Monday was such one of the toughest it was. things ever. And, I mean... You know, Avit grew me Monday, which is great. You know, and it's been great for us on the Facebook page and on Twitter. And but it's just the growing process. I want to talk about this real quick. You know, for those of you who have listened to us, just not even if you're from the beginning, from the first episode, episode two, or whatever. 
if you're CNS at cons, you're people who've come up to us and asked for photograph for photos and, and autographs. Thank you, first of all. And for those who are just listening now, starting off at episode 100, thank you for listening. And what I love about our, our listeners is this, is that you go to the beginning and if you scroll through our older shows, you'll see like they'll have like, you know, 90 listens, a hundred listens or whatever. But as it, we, the shows grew, the listens went up and, I just, and that's just word of mouth. People spent saying word of mouth. You know, of course, Bob over Fantasy Escape saying, hey, these guys have a great podcast. Listen to it. And it's just taken off. And now we're averaging about, you know, just per show, about twenty five to 3,000 people a week, 2,500 to 3,000. And then overall throughout a week, it's six, 7,000 people. So, again, thanks to everybody for, you know, pretty much giving us validation for what we do each week and just it brings us each joy to give you these shows each week. Yeah, and definitely thanks to Bob over at Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards in Aragona Boulevard in Virginia Beach for believing in us from day one. Yeah. I mean, if it wasn't for him, you know, we wouldn't be at the cons and stuff like that. He's, he's the one that brings us to the cons and stuff. He sponsors us. So, I mean, he makes it a lot easier for us to get out there and interact with the fans. And, of course, the folks over at Tidewater Comic Con for having us. We appreciate them as well, you know, for their accommodations and stuff. And, you know, without Bob, we wouldn't be there and we wouldn't be doing a lot of other things that we've been doing all also want to touch on like you said the show evolving i still remember our first interview was with cosplayer terrell dactyl yeah which was amazingly fun but that grew into us you know getting the support of dc comics and marvel comics and dark horse image idw nbc cbs abc i mean i don't want to leave anybody out obviously i mean just go go to our go to our whole huge list of interviews on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You'll see just the amazing support that we've gotten from from the major companies and the publicists and the managers and stuff like that. And the fact that you guys believe in us enough to be able to bring these people on our show for our listeners who really appreciate it. I just think that that's been a great thing that I've enjoyed doing uh, over this past 100 episodes. And I just, you get to this point and it's a milestone, but it's not like an ending point because now I can't wait to see where we go from here. You know what I mean? Well, not to mention that next month is our second year, two year anniversary. Yeah, so there's still that to come. You know, we're riding a wave of 100 right now, and we're going into our second year. And it's just, again, the support has been amazing. And I think, like I said, that to everybody over at Fox, NBC, everywhere, ABC, all the publishers, just thank you, you know, for believing us. And like I said, because, you know, believing it, because it's easy for, and I want to say this, because people might, you know, not think this, but it's true. When some publicists, I have friends who are, who are in publicity and stuff like that, when they see certain podcasts, especially, and they want to say, okay, what are your numbers like before we bring on certain people? We say, hey, you should try us or book them. You need to be of a certain quality. And for them to say, okay, you're of this quality. We'll have this guy on here, this girl on here, or whomever. It means a lot because it's like it shows how much we bust our ass. But again, also the belief that they have in us. And it's just it, – it just goes to show that you know we, we get all these big names on here. But we couldn't get these names if we were where we were shit. Like – yeah. Seven, you know, a year ago, seven months yeah. ago, whatever, you know, and, and, and it's all because of you, the fans who listen every day. We can go and say, hey, we have X amount of fans and people around the world who listen to us each week. That's why you have to have this person on our show to promote this stuff. That's why it'd be such a huge success. And you, the fans, have made it possible as well. And again, and just thank you for you know people who have told us like 
and people have told me, one of the things they love about our interviews is that it doesn't feel like an interview. It feels like we've known each these our, our guests for like a long time, and we're just friends having a chat. <laughs> yeah, and that's the, and that's the way that we like to do it. We like and we tell everybody that you know it's a chill atmosphere, feel comfortable. You know, this isn't really an interview. That's exactly what it is. We're just talking about something that we're both really passionate about, except you happen to be in it, or you have written it, or have drawn it. It doesn't matter. You know, we're all passionate about the same things, and I think that that's one of the things that comes through. Another thing I want to point out as we go here, yes, we are going to review Deadpool this week. We're both very excited. Nick's a little bit more excited. He might need to change his pants. Two times, know. baby. Two times. But uh, we want to make it clear, this is not a best of. This is a whole new episode. We are doing something a little different, though, this week. We're doing a bunch of different guests. So we're going to bring on a bunch of guests this week. We're still going to have what we're reading. We're still going to have this week in Geektainment, Nerd News, stuff like that. We'll have a highlight guest as well. Uh, but we're going to do a little different. So we're going to have multiple guests this week, and hopefully you'll enjoy what we bring to the table. Well, speaking of guests, James, our first guest come next is Alex Irvine. and for, Of course, he's the writer of Deus Ex Children's Crusade, of course, from Titan Comics, which is available now at your local shops and digitally. He's also worked on Tom Clancy's The Division and the book and the game are both available March 8th from Ubisoft. And the open beta is this week, so our interview with Alex Irvine is coming next on Down Nerdy. This is Joe Henderson, showrunner for Lucifer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, this being our 100th episode, we decided to jump forward in time to the year 2029, where augmentation is a serious threat to humanity, and the only people who can save it are Adam Jensen and his teammates from a Task Force 29, and we are now joined by the writer of Deus Ex Children's Crusade, which of course is available now at your local shops and digitally, and also Tom Clancy's The Division, the book and the game are both available on March 8th. The open beta is, of course, this week. Alex Irvine joins us. Alex, how you doing, man? I am doing well, thanks. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. And as a matter of fact, it's not just that, Alex. You've actually done a wide variety of characters in your career. I mean, from Daredevil to Transformers and all kinds of novelizations and stuff like that. So instead of asking you who your favorite character was to work with, how about what was the most challenging character you had to work with in your past works? You know, anytime you're you're working with a character that has an established fan base that people are really passionate about, um, but it's it's uh, it's it's fun, but it's also tricky. You know, so I, I mean, I don't know if I really want to pick one out as being harder than the others because you know you try to give everything the same uh, the same amount of effort and respect. And so, you know, I, I uh, when I was working on Transformers, I was I really wanted to make make Transformers fans happy and tell a cool story. And um, you know, working on Marvel stuff, I. I can't wait to see the Deadpool movie, by the way, because uh, he's one of my favorite Marvel characters to write. So there's, there's, you know, I try not to pick and choose, like picking and choose your kids. It's hard to do. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And speaking of Deadpool movie, real quick, uh, I saw it twice over the weekend. It's a, it's a, it's an astounding movie. You're, You'll you're be disappointed. Yeah. All right. Well, so I have, I have conflicting viewpoints. Now I have something going. <laughs> 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 but uh, Alex, what I love about your writing, man, is especially with a property like Deus Ex, is your use of different themes that mesh really well. And when I was reading the, the book, part of me got a sense of equilibrium mixed with a little bit of a, the battle film and tension writing of The Thing. What were some of your inspirations for this book when you were writing it? Well, near-future science fiction has always been one of my favorite things. And, and um, even when I'm not working in, in licensed areas, you know, my, my own stuff, um, I, I, that's, that's territory I go to a fair bit. Because I think it's pretty interesting to uh, stop and say, well, all right, let's take a, a technological innovation and spin it out 20 or 30 years, and, you know, what does it look like? 
And so you want to you want to take some liberties with uh, with existing things for story purposes, but you also want to keep it grounded, keep it real. You know, to say, okay, if there you know if there were augmentations, um, the technological questions are pretty interesting, but the but the social questions are almost more interesting. You know, how would people react? What would they do? Um, and then especially if something like the AUG incident happened, I mean, you can only imagine how, how that would go, and that's that's what starts to spin out in uh, in Children's Crusade and in the game. So I think uh, everybody's always arguing about what science fiction is, and, and I think the best definition I ever heard was fiction that is about the effects of technological change. And I think the ASX is certainly, at its heart, one of those kinds of stories. And so that's what I tried to dig into. I think that hits the nail right on the head, actually. And you speak of the social issues. One of the things I noticed when I reviewed this book last week on our website was how the media is kind of always watching. It seems like they're a constant voice in the background of the first issue. So even though this takes place, and you said the near future, how much of that is kind of a statement on what's actually going on in the world right now? Well, yeah, it does happen right now, and it's going to keep on happening more. I uh, just heard on the radio a few days ago that the number of licensed drone pilots uh, just this past week exceeded the number of licensed commercial airplane pilots. Wow. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Already, you know? And so so there's, um, I wrote about this in another book um, seven or eight years ago called Buyout, where it's, uh, it's a, essentially a, a, a full-on surveillance society. You literally cannot do anything without someone seeing it. Um, and I think the world of, of Deus Ex is, is um, it has a flavor of that. I mean, you know, people are always sneaking around and getting away with things in Deus Ex. That's part of the of the fun of the game um, and this story too. But if you're in a public space, then then there are there's not just one person watching you. There are multiple eyes on you at all times. And so that's something that I think is is fun to to play with in comics. You know, because you can you can angle around from so many different viewpoints, even on a single page. And to take a look at a story like this. In a, in a saturation media landscape, when you have a really, really emotional political issue that comes up, it gets more and more intensified. Look what happens on the Internet, you know? I mean, so what's, the, what's the outrage of the day? And it's all stuff that before the Internet, you might have griped, over, griped about, like over your morning coffee, and then 10 minutes later, you would have forgotten about it. And now there's 85,000 tweets about it, and it's trending, and, and there are hot takes on every website. Um, and so, the, so that media saturation... Um, amplifies everything that happens, and so that's that's part of what's going on in the book too. We're talking with Alex Irvine, writer of Deus Ex: Children's Crusade, which of course is available now at your local shops and digitally. And also, Tom Clancy's The Division, the book and game are both available March eighth, and the open beta, of course, is this week. So, Alex, in the beginning of the first issue, Jensen pretty much disobeys orders in order to save his team, and we see that he's someone who also pretty much puts the mission first and protocol last. What other ways will we be seeing him challenge his team's rules as the series goes on? Well, you're asking me to spoil my own book, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you should mention without spoiling, um, if you could. Uh, well, okay, so Jensen's in a tricky spot, right? Because he's yeah. investigating terrorism committed by Augs. He is an Aug. And there are divisions in his team on this issue. And so, and, and then there's the question of, uh, that, that you're going to see more of about uh, the Juggernaut Collective going forward. And so he's, um, he's trying to walk a bunch of different tightropes all at once. And so there are times when his obligation to the team and his obligation to what he thinks really ought to happen are going to come into conflict, and he's just going to have to figure it out as best he can. And, you know, 
knowing Jensen, he's going to stick to uh, the principles that he came in with, and here's hoping it works out for him. Well, you mentioned the conflict because basically, like you said, he's hunting his own kind. And we actually see kind of at the end of the issue, which again, I don't want to spoil it just in case anybody hasn't read it yet, that things aren't exactly as they seem and, you know, not ever who's telling the truth and who isn't kind of thing. So how much are we going to see him start to maybe question his loyalties? Because it seems like he's already kind of doing that in the first issue. Yeah, and uh, that's that's going to be one of the ongoing themes because... You know that's that's been that's been something that happened in uh, in the games before too. Is uh, you're always wondering who's pulling whose strings, and that's one of the things that makes the game story really interesting. And and so I wanted to uh, I wanted to to keep that alive in the comic. And so you'll see. Uh, in fact, I was just writing a scene today where some stuff like that was going on um, for a future issue. And so you will see uh, that that bell gets rung in several different ways over the course of this series. And then at the end, I think um, when when the resolution comes out, I think uh, with any luck, it will be uh, surprising even to people who have been trying to figure it out the whole time. At least that's my hope. Alex, this series deals with children who've been captured, and we've seen the first issue. Some become transformed one way or the other. When you're writing and creating characters who are children, especially child soldiers, well, what do you feel is the most important characteristic you must capture about them as a writer? Uh, well, I have four kids, and they range in age. I have a newborn. She's six weeks old. Oh, and, congratulations. Uh, hey, thanks. Yeah, she's I know what you're going Eve. through, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, she was born on New Year's Eve at 1130. So oh, they wow. Were, um, yeah, 1125, actually. So the nurses were taking bets on whether she was going to be their New Year's baby. Um, but it didn't turn out that way, so... And then I have a little boy who's almost six, and I have fourteen-year-old twins. And so, you know, I look across this the spectrum of ages, and and then you see these news stories about child soldiers and about you know essentially child slavery and things like that. And and you contrast that with the with the life of the average American kid, um, and it's uh, well, for one thing, it's heartbreaking, obviously, and for another, you start to wonder. At what age do do kids like this start to be responsible for what they're doing? And at what age can you say that they were just being led around and they're not responsible? Um, and that's uh, that's something that's another that's another theme that's going to come up through through the course of this series is um, is you know what 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 can you expect of children and and uh, and also what kind of terrible human being would do this to a kid? And you can ask that same question about uh, everything from you know, the child soldiers that are in Africa and Asia and um, on uh, cocoa bean plantations. There's been some recent publicity about that. And so I was thinking about this. And like I said, I have four kids. And, and, and again, near future science fiction, just, uh, just a couple of decades in the future, is a great way to tackle issues like this because it's just far enough away that you're not talking about what's already in the headlines, but it's close enough that the reader instinctively maps it back onto what's happening now, as you guys just did. And so that makes it, um, that makes it a really, for, for a writer, for a guy like me, anyway, uh, that makes it a really interesting way to engage these issues. Um, and then when you can put it in the context of a, of a story universe that's as, that's as interesting and full of skullduggery as Deus Ex, and that makes it all the more fun. Oh, absolutely. We're talking to Alex Irvine, writer of Deus Ex Children's Crusade, which is available now from Titan Comics at your local shops and digitally, but... Alex, I want to turn gears here a little bit and talk about Tom Clancy's The Division, which you wrote the book for, of course, the game also out 
on March the 8th. Open beta is going to be this week. So one of the more exciting projects that you're working on is this book. And what I love about it is the book actually ties into the game itself. And for those who don't know, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this was uh, this was a really exciting uh, uh, project for for me to work on because I've been I, I worked on ARGs back when they were first getting off the ground, alternate reality games, uh, the Beast and I Love Bees, and and um, was working in transmedia stuff before anybody was using the word transmedia. So I have been wanting since then to really see what would happen if you took a big uh, you know game property, especially, um, and instead of just having a bunch of tie-in things that were parallel stories, those can be fun. You know, the Deus Ex book is one of those, and, and I'm having a great time with that, and I think it expands and amplifies that story and and has some room of its own to to uh, uh, to have some fun with the concepts of, of the game universe. But what if you could uh, create a book that actually interacted with the game? And what if the, uh, the game interacted with the book, and it was a real actual transmedia thing with a give and take, that different parts of the story happened, but the reader who experienced both of them interacting with each other got a fuller and richer experience than the reader reading either one individually. So, you know, I was asked to write this book that initially looked like kind of a different project, and then I, I started uh, banging the drum for this kind of thing, and, uh, and Ubisoft was into the idea, So, it, which, uh, which you got to give them all the credit in the world for, because a lot of the time... Um, Big companies like that, be they, you know, movie companies, comic companies, game companies, are really protective of their IP, and they don't want to take chances with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, but once I started talking to Ubi, they were like, yeah, that sounds cool, let's do that. And so they started uh, writing parts of the book into the game, and um, there are two puzzles in the book that if you solve them in the book, you will be able to find things in the game that you would not otherwise be able to find. Uh, pages from the game are things that you can go looking for, or pages from the book, sorry, are things you can go looking for in the game and get rewards. And so the, uh, so the, the thing that, that I'm really excited about for this book and that makes it really unlike um, other stuff that's out there is that the book drives you into the game, the game loops you back to the book, and, the, uh, and, and that experience of moving back and forth between those two different kinds of storytelling creates something new. So, Alex, now here's the cool thing. I want to go back to Deus Ex for a moment. In this, in yep. series of movies that deal with great tension and fear, often there are propaganda posters that go with them, and the series has some pretty great ones towards the tail end of it. Uh, so I have to ask you, growing up, what was the scariest advertisement you saw? The scariest advertisement I saw? You know, I don't know about scariest, but the one that still stays with me is when I was a kid, there was... I don't even remember all of it. I just remember two shots of it. It was this shot of this huge landfill, mm-hmm. um, just this giant trash heap miles across. It might have been fresh kills or something like that. And then it cuts around, and there's this old Native American dude standing there looking at it with just a single tear running down his face. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know. I, that, that, that ad was on all the time when I was a kid. Yep. And I'll tell you what, to, to the extent that I'm an environmentalist now, it's because of that ad. So, because, and because, you know, and I guess there is some fear, you know, like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Um, you don't, you don't follow your own nest, you know, and that was, that was, a, that was the message of that ad. And, and, uh, and it really landed with me. I don't know about other people, but I, like I said, I still think about it. No, it's funny. Cause that's the one that popped into my head too. It's funny that you picked that one. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm done. I'm not even kidding. See, I, see, I grew up in the nineties. So for me, the scariest was Furbies. <laughs> 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 no, 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 no
was I was too old. I was I was impervious to Furbies by then. <laughs> <laughs> we got lucky, Alex. Well, <laughs> well, we want to thank Alex Irvine, of course, the writer of Deus Ex Children's Crusade, for coming on our hundredth episode. Of course, remember it is available now from Titans Comics at your local shops and digitally as well. And also, don't forget Tom Clancy's The Division, the book, and the game are both available next month. March 8th, and the open beta is this week. Alex, thanks for coming on, man, talking to us. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, and congrats on 100 episodes, guys. Well, Nick, it is our 100th episode. This was what we're reading this week, of course, Deus Ex Children's Crusade from Titan Comics, which you can find my review on our website right now, down at nerdypodcast.com. It's a great book. I don't know about you, Nick, but, you know, just, you know, for housekeeping purposes, what we normally do on the show, this one was a poll for me. What about you? Oh, this is a definite pull for me. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, you have a character who, anytime you have a character that deals with a certain inner conflict, like, you know, remember, he, he, he's an Og, but he wasn't, he didn't, it was, it's kind of against his will. Right, you know? exactly, so, yeah. So, when you have to deal with something like that, and he's helping out this, this team, and they're trying, they're go, her whole goal is, you know, anti-Og, and, and to kill the Ogs, he has to kill his own kind. It creates a great sense of character conflict, and uh, Alex does a great job of just capturing just the feel of it. And also, there's certain scenes as you progress in the book with the children where I'm like, you know, and and you have soldiers holding guns to certain people, and you're like, oh my god, this is like the thing where it's like any of us can be the monster, you know, kind of thing. And and just the tension is so right. great. He does a great job, Alex does, of taking his writing and making each panel feel like its own slice of tension. And it, and I'm, I was reading this at six o'clock in the morning, mind you. And I'm like, Oh my God, like this is so much, like, I'm on the edge of my seat and I'm like, this is amazing. You know, this is, this is downright. You gotta go out and get this book. It's such a great, great thing. I mean, and not only that, but he created a great tension there and the whole sense of who can you trust, which you really start to wonder as you're reading this comic. And I also can't wait for the division, which is the book that's going to tie into the game that's going to be coming out on March the 8th, this isn't just like a throwaway strategy guide type thing. No. This is stuff that it's a survival guide from before the events that actually happened in the game that are actually, you got to find pages of this book in the game. And you can tie it back in. And if you look at the preview pages of the book itself, there's handwritten notes on there. It actually looks like a legit survival guide. So I think to be able to do something like that. And tie in, in a, to a video game in a way that I don't think anybody's ever done before. I think that's an amazing thing that Alex and Ubisoft have done together. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole puzzle thing, like, you can find things. If you solve the puzzles, you can find things in the game that others won't be able to. And I'm like, that's genius. <laughs> you know? That's that's really, really cool. And for those of you who want to find Alex on social media, you can find him on Twitter at Alex Irvine, A-L-E-X-I-R-V-I-N-E. Also on Blogspot as well, alexirvine.blogspot.com. But that's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Again, thanks to Alex Irvine for coming on and talking to us about Deus Ex Children's Crusade. But come up next, more of our 100th episode continues. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy. Come up next on our 100th episode, Extravaganza. This is Vanessa Marshall, voice of Gamora on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy and Hera on Star Wars Rebels on Disney XD. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, celebrating our 100th episode, we talked about Spider-Man in our very first episode, so why not bring back Spider-Man in a big way? And that's what Disney XD is actually doing. They've got a big one-hour premiere of Season 4 of Ultimate Spider-Man, Sunday, February 21st at 9 a.m. And it's Ultimate Spider-Man vs. the Sinister Six this time, where we're talking to 
Stephen Wacker, who's a VP of current series at Marvel Animation Studios, and Court Lane, who is also VP of Animation Development and Partnerships. Guys, how are you doing today? Good. How's Don and Nerdy? I want whatever you were drinking this morning. (laughs) (laughs) We are fantastic. Again, we're celebrating our 100th episode. It's just an honor to have you guys on. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So well, what to celebrate the 100th episode, Court is down and I am nerdy. Yeah, there we go. I like that. This season means that we get to 104 episodes of Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah, see, yeah. So you guys are going to be right there with us. Yes. Right. So, so we're four ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll be able to catch up. Oh, shoot. That's right. Yeah, we haven't heard them yet. Don't do any more episodes. Yeah, <laughs> I can't promise that. Yeah. So, what is it about Spider-Man and his universe that makes both of them exciting to see on television and also in terms of animation? There's a lot of answers to that question. I think visually Spider-Man is just the most dynamic, exciting character, most exciting superhero ever created. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, visually he's really interesting to look at and what he does. But, you know, he's he's arguably the most relatable superhero and that he feels very much like a real person with problems that you can relate to. And, and um, you know, and there's this duality, like he's just a real normal guy as Peter Parker with problems making enough money and getting attention and, and having trouble getting his work done or his schoolwork done, whatever it is, you know, he has very relatable problems. The secret and, and, to the yeah. character, sorry, Quentin, no, no, that, that's just it. goes back to what Stan and Steve did back in 1962. Right. That, that comic should have been called Peter Parker. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it was the first time, you know, you really cared about the person under the mask uh, in such a personal way. Um, and it was a time when teenage culture was becoming big in our world for the first time. Uh, you really can't do any Spider-Man series worth its weight and salt without making it a story about Peter Parker. And that's what we're trying to, we're trying to do with this, with this show. Most definitely. You've been successful with that so far, no doubt. And before we dive into this, the new season itself, I wanted to ask you guys, several months ago, we actually did an episode where we talked about morning cartoons and how they've changed so much since we were younger. Now, do you feel like Marvel Animation's kind of bringing that excitement back for this generation, not just in the morning, but overall? I think so. I, the audience has changed since we were young, um, truly. They consume a lot of media across a lot of different platforms at a variety of lengths, many of them very short form. Um, So you have to work in a different way to keep them interested and engaged and and get them excited about the characters. However, we do have really straight ahead fun action adventure in these episodes with a strong dose of humor, which kids like. Unfortunately, Spidey is quippy and funny in so many ways that we can deliver on on that. Um, So yeah, I like to think we're making you know, morning action adventure cartoons cool again. And I think we saw that in, you know, in season three, our ratings went up. The show mm-hmm. continues to be really successful. So it's working. The Sinister Six is a name that instantly grabs a lot of people's attention. Another name that grabs people's attention, of course, is Hydra. Now, without spoiling anything, in what ways will Doc Ox teaming up with Armzola this season push Peter Parker to his limits, not only as Spider-Man, but as Peter Parker himself? It is hard to answer that without giving away things for the season. Give away what happens in the first two. What we see is uh, the team up of the greatest, two of the greatest super villain powers on the planet. Spidey's growth throughout the first three seasons is learning to become the ultimate Spider-Man, working with S.H.I.E.L.D. And what happens as we start is he sees that all fall apart. 
he sees a world where none of that matters anymore, where there's something bigger than him. He's working with friends like Miles Morales, uh, like uh, the Iron Spider, uh, like, who am I forgetting? Agent Venom. Agent Venom. And, you know, in sort of the classic Peter Parker moments, wonders if he's up to this task. You know, at one of his lowest moments, he's joined by a new hero named the Scarlet Spider, who's going to have a very profound effect on Peter's life throughout this season and is sort of the main thrust of the entire season as he comes to to learn about the Scarlet Spider and where he come from and starts to consider him a brother. And that's just where we start. But this is there's certainly an element of this season that is about tearing Peter Parker down in the hopes of building him back up. That's definitely going to be amazing. As a matter of fact, you talk about all the new characters that we're going to see in Season 4 of Ultimate Spider-Man vs. The Sinister Six, which is going to be this Sunday, February the 21st at 9 a.m. on Disney XD. And we actually saw last season a whole bunch of different cast members as well. We had members of Avengers Assemble on the show. And you hear Marvel all the time talk about it's all connected. But, you know, sometimes certain characters in the TV universe they can't use or in the movie universe. So working at Marvel Animation, do you guys kind of feel like you have the most freedom and the most toys to play with? Yeah, I, I suppose you're right. But you have to be ju- judicious because we need to keep the story focused on Peter telling a great Peter story every episode. So you have to be careful because the danger is going down the rabbit hole of exploring all of your fanboy desires to see this character and that mm-hmm. character. So we control it. You will see plenty of that this season. Um, in particular, I love the dynamic in this season and multiple episodes between him and Doctor Strange who are completely opposite in terms of personality and perspective. Spidey is science, Spidey likes to joke, and he's irreverent, and doesn't take it all too seriously. Doctor Strange, you know, is, is in the world of the supernatural, and he's, he's a little stern compared to Spidey. But they have this really nice friendship despite their differences, and they rely on each other in a, a really cool way. And so that's one of my great fanboy things that I'm enjoying in this season. We're talking with Stephen Wacker, VP of Current Series, Marvel Animation Studios, and Court Lane, VP Animation Development and Partnerships. We're talking about Ultimate Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six. So here's a question for you guys. If you could have one of the Sinister Six's abilities, which one would you choose? Ooh. Um, well, Doc Ogg is the smartest. Steve thinking. While he thinks, I will say that one thing you'll see in the season is that of all villains, Hydro-Man's power is actually quite epic in scale when it's fully unleashed. And there are scenes that are just breathtaking visuals of him, full power, this, the size of a small city, using his, using his powers over water and, and really sort of digging into the ocean and, and using tons and tons of water, moving it around in a really threatening way. And so I think that's cool. I would like Craven's taste in pants. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's something you don't have. Oh, something I don't have. Whoops. He's wearing tights right now. <laughs> I wouldn't expect Peter anything Frank. less. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh wow. Well, of course, Craven is going to be one of the members of the Sinister Six that's going to be coming up this season. All new Sinister Six. Now, it's hard enough for kind of the Sinister Six members to get along anyway. But you throw Hydra in the mix, and of course we know Mark Hamill's going to be back as Armin Zola. That adds a whole new dimension. So, kind of without spoiling anything, is there a chance we might see some potential conflicts come up between those two groups? Uh, yes. Yeah, and I'm comfortable saying that eventually Ock and, <laughs> hey, <that's flat> out. <laughs> Ock and Zola will turn on each other, and that's lots of fun. 
and Spidey caught in the middle and sort of having to take sides, which side I won't say. Um, There's nothing more fun than watching Mark Hamill and Tom Kenny chew up the scenery together in scenes. Yes, we were very blessed. And one thing you guys mentioned earlier on, you know, there's a new slew of characters coming in. You you mentioned Scarlet Spider, Iron Spider. Another person going to be coming in is Agent Venom as well. And he's one of the people teaming up with Spider-Man. And when I was growing up, I remember the 90s Spider-Man cartoon, of course. And, you know, one of the greatest moments, I think, in comics history was when Spider-Man and Venom teamed up to face Carnage. What is it about Venom teaming up with Spider-Man that just makes it so special? I, I, before I answer that, I've got to stop on the greatest moment in comics history. People, and particularly boys, love Venom. <laughs> they love Venom as a visual, as a villain. They love his powers. And so there's this natural instinct to see this character they love so much team up with the other character they love so much, Spidey. And so finding a way to do that. But um, because we've done that, and Agent Venom is on the side of the heroes this time around, we had to find a way for other evil symbiotes to rise and become a threat to both Spidey and Agent Venom in this season, and that's all I will say about that. You say other Other evil symbiote characters. Uh-oh. Oh. Oh. And I'm going to stop because our PR team is on the line and they'll shut me up. (laughs) Well, I say say best best moment in comic history because in terms of team-ups, I didn't expect to see that. Like, you know, when I saw it for the first time growing up, I'm like, Wow! Like they act like like right. this came out of left field, and it just it's something that stuck with me. I'm 27 now, but when I saw it, when I was like eight, nine years old. <laughs> it stuck with me since. What was your first Spidey story? Oh man, my first Spidey story had to be who? Um, it was it, it was him taking on. It was actually him taking on Goblin, Green Goblin. It was one of the first encounters with Green Goblin when I was growing up. I actually have some old Spider-Man comics and. I don't remember. Oh, the so you were reading before. stuff from before. You were reading stuff from before you were born. Oh yeah, I was. I was. Got I, you, man. My, my parents read comics, so you know some of the stuff I saw from early in the days, even like in the '90s, I read some like uh, Venom, some Venom comics as well. When Venom was in the, the Amazing Spider-Man runs in like the '90s and stuff like that. But yeah, I mm-hmm. went back in time and just read some like old stuff, and it's just it's just stuck with me since. Spider-Man is one of my favorite yeah. characters of all time. That's awesome. I mean, it's great yeah, to we, have you. Uh, we, always knew, we always knew that Venom was popular when we started doing, uh, you know, the digital comics. He was always a big seller. Retailers were always asking for more Venom stuff. And he was always hard to isolate outside of Spider-Man because, you know, such an such a evil character uh, and villain. It's hard to craft an entire book around that, mm-hmm. an entire comic. It's hard to craft a story without a protagonist. Um, and that was part of the thinking that went into... Uh, grafting the Venom symbiote onto Flash Thompson uh, originally when we did that in the books, uh, finding a way to turn turn all the cool visual stuff you love about Venom into a heroic story. Oh, most definitely. And speaking of other characters that we love that are that are going to be in this show, uh, Spider-Man versus the Ultimate Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six is Miles Morales because you always hear arguments from fans who want to see more Miles Morales, but then the other side of fans who want to see the continuation of the story of Peter Parker. So since they're going to be both a part of this upcoming season, and we've had Miles Morales on the show before as well, is this kind of the place where fans can get the best of both worlds? I hope so. You know, yeah. the, watching them play off each other puts Peter in a unusual situation uh, as a teacher, in a way. Yeah. Um, He's not always comfortable with no. that, 
but and not always good at it. Yeah, and but Miles is younger and more eager and um, and frankly a little reckless at times. And Peter sees a younger version of himself in Miles and, and feels the need to mentor him to help him. And and the thing is, we got to see Miles in a couple episodes last season in one specific storyline. He appears a lot in this season, alongside Peter, trapped in our reality. And that's all I will give away, but it's a really interesting dynamic that they have. Um, and Miles is just a great hero. And, uh, and we, you know, even just as we see from the audience, they were so excited to see him last season. I think they're going to love to see him more. So before I let you guys go, where can people find more information about Marvel's Ultimate Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six? Well, we're going to be on Disney XD starting uh, this Sunday at uh, 9 a.m., I believe, mm -hmm. uh, and then most weeks after that. And uh, Marvel.com and DisneyXD.com has sections where you can dig in more. Which is amazing, and it's going to be a one-hour spectacular, by the way, this coming Sunday yeah. at 9 a.m. on Disney XD. We're looking forward to that. We want to thank you so much to Stephen Wacker, VP of Current Series and Marvel Animation Studios in Courtland, VP of Animation Development and Partnerships for Marvel Animation Studios, for talking to us about Ultimate Spider-Man vs. Sinister Six. Thank you. You guys are awesome. Thanks. You know, James, we hear about all these people that Spider-Man, of course, is going to be bringing in with him, Scarlet Spider, Agent Venom, stuff like that. He never invited us. I mean, he didn't need two podcasting buddies, you know? I mean... We could have been his Jimmy Olsen. We're celebrating 100 episodes here. Come on, Spidey. Don't be that guy, <laughs> Peter Parker. Seriously. <laughs> but again, I mean, we're going to go see you on Sunday, February 21st at 9 a.m. on Disney XD. Come on. Exactly. But again, thanks so much to Stephen Wacker and Court Lane for coming on to discuss Ultimate Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six. Again, they have a one-hour premiere this coming Sunday at 9 a.m. on Disney XD, and I gotta tell you, man, I'm excited for this. As somebody who's watched, this, grew up watching the Spider-Man uh, show from the 90s, and now seeing what they've done with I mean, Ultimate Spider-Man and how great it is, I, I love this. I really do. And I like the fact that it's not too kiddish, and I don't mean that in a bad way, because I think that they're definitely appealing to both audiences. Oh, yeah. And I think that's really hard to do in animation with the in-depth storylines that they go through in the action. And now we're going to have the Sinister Six and Hydra and Mark Hamill as Ar Armazola. Are you kidding me? Like, yeah. seriously? Who wouldn't want to watch that? Yeah. I mean, it's just... Uh, it's, it's so great. You know, you have all these, these great characters in there and they're meeting up. I mean... Hydra and Sinister Six, like, that's a, kind of an epic team. Especially if it's, if it's Doc Ock, you know, and, and it's just, it's, it's going to be awesome. Like, I can just say that right now. It's going to be a great, great thing. And we get that little nugget that they're going to kind of turn on each other at some yeah. point. Like, yeah, okay, this is going to be good stuff. Exactly, but come up next, oh boy, 11 years in the making. 11 long years, and it's finally here. Our review of Deadpool the movie is coming next. So get your chimichangas because more of our 100th episode is coming your way. This is comic book writer and co-creator of Deadpool, Fabian Niciesa, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, James, time to go around the nerd. Ah, screw it. We're not going to go around the nerds. We already know what's trending and made $150 plus million plus over the weekend. And we're going to tell you right now, this is going to be filled with with expletives, so if you have kids, you might want to hit pause or fast forward a little bit, because we're about to make the fucking chimichangas, because it's time to review Dead Deadpool! Yes! <laughs> God damn it, yes. I, I, now, I was going to come on here, and I was going to do the whole, 
oh, it was okay kind of thing. But you know what? I want everybody to come a little bit closer, a little bit closer. I love this shit. It was fucking awesome. It was everything I wanted in 11 years of waiting for a fucking Deadpool movie. I got what I wanted. I saw it twice. Probably go see it three times. It was like getting jacked off by Santa Claus on a unicorn on the way to Atlantis. It was that fucking magical. I, oh, it was good. I don't think I remember the last time going into a movie to see, going into a theater to see a movie where I knew it couldn't suck. Yeah. And I mean that genuinely, and I'm not, and you're a way bigger Deadpool fan than I am, know way more about Deadpool than I do, but I go into this movie after seeing everything about it and hearing everything about it and just seeing the vibe, and I'm like, there's no way this is going to suck. It, yeah. at, the, at the very least, at worst, it's going to be hilarious, even if the story and, goes nowhere, but it did. And, and here's the thing, and this is what I want, what I want to do, is the way I want to frame this review, James, is by, I want to talk about the background first, and then we'll get into the movie itself. All right. So the background of this, of course, everybody knows it took 11 years for them to make it. And Ryan Reynolds pretty much led the charge and stuff like that. Here's the thing. When they were about to make this movie, when it got greenlit, of course, we know the whole thing with the whole test footage getting leaked out. And here's the thing. The last minute when they were about to film, they had to cut $7 million from their budget. Like They were ready to film, ready to go. Like, and like Right before they got word, they had to cut budget by $7 million. I mean, let's talk about that budget for a second. What was it? Fifty-six 58, million. Fifty-eight Come million. On. Budget. And look what they did with it. Fifty-eight million dollar budget, and it made a hundred and fifty, hundred sixty plus million dollars opening weekend, which pretty much broke records for not just superhero movies and, and you know radar superhero movies, pretty much, but movies in the month of February. It broke the record for opening weekends, and. The, now we're seeing this now with 20th Century Fox. What happened the other day? They said Wolverine 3 will be rated R. Yep. I so, want to put this into perspective for just a second, too, going back to the budget thing. Yeah. Remember, Ant-Man did not make its budget domestically. No. It did not. Deadpool made its budget back three times over in one weekend. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. And like I said, I saw it twice. Like, it was good. Like... You know, the budget, and that's the thing, is that when we've seen this $58 million movies, and I think what it did was it gave a reality check to, like, Marvel, even to DC, where they're saying, okay, guys, you guys want to do $200 million budget movies or $100 plus million budgets, look what we did with $58 million. Yeah, like, I think you can go beyond that. I mean, talk about Turtles and all that yeah. stuff. You can talk about all these huge budgets. Like, And think about it. I mean, I, I'm just going to point this out for the sake of talking about budgets. We'll get more into it when we talk about the actual movie. How much of that budget was in that last scene on the carrier yeah. when they're doing all that, you know, CG type stuff? How much of their budget was on that alone? So you take that out of the equation, and how much could they have made this movie for? Exactly, and you know, you look at it from a from the again from the budget standpoint, what they do with it, and it's nothing short of amazing. And this again sets a precedent for you know, there's been some mixed emotions of how high was going to review this. Are they going to say, okay, every superhero movie needs to be rated R now and he needs to have be crude and funny? I don't think it's going to be it. I don't think that's going to be it at all. I think no. they're going to learn from it and say, listen, certain properties like Wolverine, we need to make it rated R because it's Wolverine. You know, I mean, you play the X-Men Origins game, it's so much bloodier than the movies, Very any of so. them. And they're like, we need to make it like this. It needs to be brutal. Certain characters you can pull off. Now, I know people are going to say, well, what about having Watchmen and everything else? I think it was more with the source material thing. And I think that Watchmen 
I know people love it, but I don't think it's a, as big of a following as Deadpool does. Well, it's a totally separate entity, too, I think. Right. And where Watchmen, Deadpool's more a superhero thing. Watchmen's more of a political movie. It's more political. It's a political movie with superheroes in it. It's it's like comparing an image comic to a Marvel or a DC superhero comic right. to me. I don't, think, I don't think that there's any comparison right. there. But you're right. I mean, that's the closest you've got. But I, I think that when you look at Deadpool and the success it had for Radar superhero movie, like I said, it hit all the factors I I, I wanted in a Deadpool movie, and I've been waiting for. And I hope because I kind of I'm not gonna lie, I kind of did go in here a little bit nervous just because you know I mean reviews reading reviews are one thing, but going to see a movie is another thing. But I saw it, man, and let's just dive into the movie. So and let's start with the opening credits. Best. Opening cred sequence I've ever seen. No question about it. Like a douchebag, a moody teenager. It was great. And I mean, if you can get people laughing during the opening credits when yeah. all you're doing is putting text on a screen, yeah, that you're doing something. I mean, First, you know, there was no cartoon or anything at the beginning. No, it was just text on the screen and people were rolling. Exactly. And, you know, the thing is... You know, like a British villain, and you know, mm-hmm. God's what was it God's perfect creation, God's perfect angel, or whatever like that, which is Ryan Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, directed by an overpaid douchebag. That <laughs> so was like, the best one right there. But like, I went to go see it Friday. I saw it Friday morning. It was sold out surprisingly. Because uh, again, it's I know it's Friday, but it's it's still like ten thirty in the morning. But people were laughing hysterically at the opening credits, and uh, let's fuck. Let's talk about the ending credits as well. So we're on the credit topic. I never laughed my ass off at animation in my entire life as the much cartoon, as I did in the credits. The cartoon was so great. Oh it my reminded God. me of of the beginning cartoon in National Lampoons, which was funny, but to like the 10th degree. They kicked it up Deadpool style, and it was amazing. And everybody thought that that was the end credit sequence. Yeah. There were people that left after that, that stayed for the cartoon, but left after them like, yeah. ah, you might want to sit down. Yeah. And, you know, we'll do a quick little synopsis. I mean, people know who Deadpool is, but let's just go over it really quickly. So Deadpool, for people who don't know much about him, Wade Wilson, he's a mercenary for hire. He has cancer. He finds out that there's this treatment facility he can go to to get treatment for his cancer. And he'll get superpowers and stuff like that. Turns out, not the entire case. And what happens is the treatment that they give him is to, you know, make his mutant cells uh, pretty much react. Yeah, wake and, him up. Yeah, and wake him up, and it causes his cancer to aggressively go forward, which causes his, you know, look and everything. And of course, the only movie is pretty much him going after the guy who did this to him, which is you know Ajax, also known as Francis. And I gotta tell you, like the the start off with Deadpool. I mean, Ryan Reynolds was born to play Deadpool. And, yeah, he was. And, I mean, the writing was fantastic. The, I mean, it was just – it's really, really good. And what I enjoyed about it was when he breaks the fourth wall, it really felt genuine and it felt authentic and it felt – you know, because I think a lot of people going in to the Deadpool movie would know who Deadpool is. But even there were some people in the theater I knew who I kind of went with who didn't know much about him. Mm-hmm. And then they saw him break the fourth wall. And they weren't taken back by it. They actually found it, like, hilarious. And there I'm was like, a fourth wall break inside a fourth yeah, wall break, actually. 16, it was just really it's funny. Like, it's like 16 walls. <laughs> 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 but, I mean, everybody in this movie, I mean, you want to talk about, and this is something we got to talk about probably right now, is you look at someone with Fox to a Fantastic Four and how big of a flop that was. 
where it didn't go away. It went away from the source material. Deadpool, what's strongest thing is, it didn't deter away from the source material at all. It was strictly faithful to the source material, to all the characters, even from Deadpool all the way down to like the blind L was great. Now, Negasonic Teenage Warhead, it did change her powers, but it does come off better, though, the way it did in the movie than in the comic books. And I'm not going to lie, man, one of my favorite parts of this movie was Colossus. Yeah, Colossus was really cool, and the way that they, they finally got Colossus right, from the look to his attitude, absolutely everything, and him being the quote-unquote good guy of the whole kind of story, and, you know, with Negasonic Teenage Warhead being the bratty teenager and everything. Oh, yeah. Everybody had their own personalities that were different, and that made it work really he, well, I think. Colossus, the, he, I mean, he, of course, was a straight man, but he played the overly optimistic to a point where he's very annoying straight man. Oh, yeah. Just even when he's walking with Negasonic, he's like, breakfast is important meal of day. Here, here's protein bar. And I'm like... Oh my god, just got douche chills just and watching then, him. But that look she gives him makes it all worth it though. Yeah. The way she looks at him like, really, dude? <laughs> by really? By, 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 when he, during that scene, I went to see that again twice, on, once on Friday and once on Sunday. I went Sunday with a group of friends. And uh, my one friend turned to me and he goes, that's a Nutri-Grain bar, it's full of lies. <laughs> <laughs> oh that is so true yeah and but, I mean it was it, it's just great the way they carried everybody like I said going back to Colossus the person that did it right his body type finally got it right he's metal the entire time back yep. in the other X-Men movies it's just like okay let's get a guy who's sort of built but let's put him paint him in silver and that's Colossus it's like no that's not him Colossus is like this hulking Russian dude you know and, and they got him right and it's great. Definitely. And I got to be honest, man. You know, we, we've joked on the show before about T.J. Miller always playing T.J. Miller yeah. in movies. I, this is the part I think he was born to play. He was born <laughs> to play Weasel. I mean, if you were to if you were to pick handpick guys and get, like, your dream team for a movie, I think they really did here. And Miranda Bacarin was fantastic as Vanessa slash copycat. And, you know, I don't think we really quite got there yet. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, everybody was just so good. In this movie, it was like perfect casting, and it drives me crazy because we were talking about this off the air. I was like, how could a studio get one movie so right in Deadpool and so wrong at the exact opposite of the end of the spectrum as Fantastic Four? But it's amazing. If you're going to bounce back as a studio, this is the way to do it big time. Oh, exactly. And again, the chemistry with everybody just works. And I think the reason why Deadpool works in ways Fantastic Four didn't outside the use of source material it's the fact that you got people on the project that were really passionate about the property. Oh, no itself. doubt. Especially Ryan Reynolds. I mean, yeah. you, you want to see somebody sink their heart and soul into something? Ryan Reynolds and sunk everything he had into Deadpool. By now, everybody knows he stole one of the suits from the set. But I remember I was listening to an interview with him last week, and he said that one of the reasons why he kind of stole a suit outside of, you know, it's been 11 years, is that he wants to do stuff for the DVD that like wasn't in the movie like, he wants right. to film things just for the dvd with that suit and it's like you know it's, it'd be awesome and again they got it they got it perfectly the humor was great uh everything was, was just good the fight scenes were amazing and you know uh, ed screen as ajax was, was great gina carano as angel dust was God, fantastic was such a douche and it was awesome right <laughs> <laughs> right but again he i think the best part about what they did with ajax was they said it in the beginning of you know it, you know uh, you know your typical english bad guy mm-hmm. and they said okay we named you this in the credits you have to act this way and he yep. did it to a t 
Like it was, it was great, you know. And and I love, you know, not part of me thinks that you know they're talking about an X Force movie, and of course Wolverine three. Now that's rated R. Is Deadpool gonna make an appearance in it? And I can maybe see a possibility because he has that line of yep. when Constance is like, "We're going to talk to the professor." And he goes, "McAvoy or Stewart?" These timelines are confusing. Yeah, which was one of the best jokes of the whole movie. I yeah. love that as he's being dragged away by Colossus. Yeah, but I, I just think you know the whole banter with him and Blind Al was great. And again, going back to T.J. Miller. You can just tell that they were having a lot of fun just ad-libbing some oh, yeah. lines, just talking oh, to one yeah. another. That's why I came up for the deleted scenes. There's just like an extended run of jokes that, you know, him and him and Reynolds did together. It would be, it would be great. And I think that that's something that would be awesome, you know. And I'm sorry, but the tiny hand thing. Oh, yeah. That, oh. that killed me, man. <laughs> it's, it's like the size of a KFC spork. I bet it feels huge in this hand. Dude, I'm just going to say it right now. That There's a cosplay opportunity for you there. <laughs> I'm just going to throw it out there. Battle-worn Deadpool. I mean, if we've got to get a, one of those baby dolls and attach the hand <laughs> on it and duct tape it on, I mean, if we're going to do that, yeah. we can do that. <laughs> That'd be fucking great. Like, I mean, there's a cosplay <laughs> opportunity just screaming at you right now. Yeah. But, I mean, I love this movie. It was good. The storytelling was good. And what was great about the storytelling, we haven't talked about this, but it's technically it is a love story. And yeah, they it make, is. And they make the Wade Wilson origin so heartbreaking. And yeah. so they, feel, they, don't break, they don't do like a lot of certain films, I feel, with like, you know, like with an Ant-Man or whatever, with an origin story. Like, okay, we're here, we're here. Boom, boom, boom. Trial. You know, you're, you're a hero now. With Wade, it was probably one of the saddest because you're like, you know, it's some. There was a point where I'm like, again, it was like when I seen 127 Hours, which is also brought up in the movie. Um, I'm like, okay, there's a part where James Franco's gonna not have to cut his hand off; he's gonna get away. There was a point where I'm watching this, I'm like, Wade Wilson's not gonna get cancer; he's gonna be fine, live with you know for forever with Vanessa yeah. and stuff like that. And then they drop the the cancer bomb on him, and it's just, wow, man, it hits you. Like and you're like what? like this is a and it made the relationship feel authentic. That's the perfect word right there. Is they made it feel authentic. And one of the things I the only thing I was worried about going into this movie is was that it was going to be you know joke 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 action 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 and that they would kind of ignore the origin and not really tell a meaningful story. But they really did. And to me, that's the biggest victory that this movie won when they put it together was telling that story and making people care about this, not just the character, but the relationship itself. So to give that that kind of a solid ground really kept you invested in the movie. Even if you weren't a Deadpool fan going in, it kept you invested throughout the movie. So what they did right was to do that and bring new fans in. And I think that that's something that Marvel and DC are both kind of guilty of. They don't necessarily bring, do things to bring new fans in right. in all of their movies. And I think Deadpool did that. Well, I think in certain parts of it, I think with a lot of Marvel movies especially, and DC, um, is that, There's not a lot to compare well, no, with DC saying, right now. But, no, but, but what I'm saying yeah. is that from a certain standpoint, when it comes to relationships, there's just not that heart that I got from Deadpool. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like, I know they're trying to like, Oh, there's Hulk and Black Widow, but it's like, no, nah, I don't believe that. For well, Ant Man's Ant Man's another example too. Yeah, you didn't really that feel either. that like you felt it in Deadpool, and it has nothing to do with the acting. We're not saying it's bad acting. No, it's, it's just, just the writing the story. The story, the story. It just doesn't give that depth of a of a, of a relationship. You know, in terms of, you know, like that's like I said, there's a lot of 
you know, formulas we've seen in a lot of superhero movies, whether it's Marvel, DC, whatever, is there's always going to be that bad guy that, you know, captures the, per- the the one love of the main hero. Right. And there's a part where you're like, or a lot of certain things, I'm like, well, they didn't really build up and spend time with that relationship, so you don't really care about him kidnapping the, you know, the, the love interest. Where here, you're like, dude, like, she was with him through cancer and yeah. all this other stuff, and not to mention he left. He left her in the middle of the night. And they deal with that, too, yeah. which is cool. And it's just, again, I, I just love this movie so, so much. And I, it just works. The writing, the writing, and then Ryan Reynolds came out the other day and said they are, right now, working on a script for for uh, Deadpool 2. I mean, strike while the iron's hot and the momentum is right there and do this while And they're saying fresh. Cable's coming, so, you know, yep. that's going to be interesting. And, I mean, the speculation's out there. A lot of people, I mean... Well, Kira Knightley is my, my number one choice. Well, yeah, that that would be very interesting, <laughs> Did you see the photo that they released? I, I did. I don't know that they can be ballsy enough to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know that this is Deadpool, and, and we knew that this was a risk going in when they first announced it, and it worked out like gangbusters, but I don't know that you want to roll the dice like that. And I, I, I want to address something real quick. You know, people were, I was uh, at dinner with a friend of mine the other night, and we're talking about the movie. And he's like, you know, I wasn't really, I didn't really like the end credit sequence. I'm like, I thought it was brilliant. The Ferris Bueller thing, yeah. where it's him, it's just him breaking the fourth wall. Of like, you're still here. It's over. You know, what'd you expect? Sam Jackson to come out in a leather number and, and you know, invite me to be joining the Avengers or something like that? You know, he's yeah. like, no. And he's like, oh, if you're expecting something for Deadpool 2, we don't have the budget for it. <laughs> you know? It's just, it, it's, it, it's just one of those things where I'm like, it's perfect. Like, everything about this was perfect. The jokes were perfect. The writing was great. The villains, I thought, were fantastic. The fight scenes were great. And again, going back to Colossus, he's such one of those really super straight guys where he's fighting Gina Carano and her tip pops out and he's like, whoa! And he like lets that her tip back great. in. That was great. You're a very beautiful lady. <laughs> she just punches him in the dick. <laughs> I loved that. And, and of course, Negasonic Teenage Warhead was great too as well. And uh, it, it was just it, it was just awesome. And I, I said, I'm probably going to see it for a third time, which is a rarity. It's rare I see things for two times or twice. But I'm going to see this a third time, probably. And I'm also going to buy the DVD, of course, oh, uh, when it no comes out. But it's time for us to give our review, James. I'm going to go last, so I'm going to have you go first. It almost feels like this isn't even necessary. But, you know, yeah. things, you know, keeping with tradition, I'm going to give this movie 10 bottles of Francis out of 10. <laughs> nice. I'm going to give this 12 masturbating atop of a unicorn out of 12. All right. That's a first <laughs> for a lot of reasons. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. If you've seen the movie, you know why. Well, yeah, of course. It was quick, but it was there. That's what she said. And outside of that, that's too, too uh, adult for somebody. I'll give it 12 Voltron rings out of 12. There you go. There's another one. Well, I mean... Parents strongly cautioned has never been more appropriate than it has been. parents walking out of this theater out yeah. of 12. <laughs> I mean, this is, don't let your kids see this movie. I don't uh, like to encourage people not to see a movie. Don't take well, your I kids. I, I remember I tweeted out on Friday when I went to go see it. I'm like, I've waited 11 years for this Deadpool movie and somebody brought a fucking infant. 
Don't be fantastic. Don't do that to your kids where they have to tell their story with their friends about how they watched that inappropriate movie one time with their mom. Because <laughs> we've all got that story. This movie is very inappropriate. You do not want to I be awkward around your kids. A, a sex scene has never made me want to like have Thanksgiving dinner so bad. <laughs> and the greatest Stanley cameo ever. Oh my god, yes. I'm not gonna say what it is, but it's I think it's his best one. He's never enjoyed himself more though. As far as I'm oh, I, 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 can, I think that's for sure. Just that, saying. That's going to do it with our review of Deadpool. The chimichangas have been eaten. My load has been spent all over the computer and the movie screen chairs and everything else in the theater. Yeah, let's just say uh, I brought my own bucket of popcorn and not to eat out of it. But uh, that's going to do it for Deadpool review. Come next, more of our 100th episode spectacular extravaganza. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy come up next. Hi, this is Katrina Law from Arrow, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast with James Witham and Nick Battaglia. Well, we saw the fall finale and a big cliffhanger there for Gotham on Fox. Can't wait for it to return February the 29th at 8 p.m., and it's the rise of the villains all season. And how can you have the rise of the villains without Dr. Hugo Strange? We're so excited for our 100th episode to have B.D. Wong, who plays Hugo Strange, on with us today. B.D., how are you doing? I'm good, James. How are you? Hello, hello everybody. <laughs> We're doing well, BD. And again, just thank you for joining us on our 100th episode. It's such an honor to have somebody like you on here. Now, as someone who has been a part of nerd and geek culture since, of course, 1993 with the Jurassic Park series, and then you had an episode on the X-Files, and now Gotham, what's your overall reaction to how the culture has grown and, more importantly, been accepted by many over the past few decades? You know, uh, I mean, I grew up not being really one of those um, iconic culture people. This it, it is all kind of, in some really bizarre way, really new to me. And um, so I'm fascinated by it. I don't, you know, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not as much a cheerleader for the culture as I am a fan, a new, kind of a new fan of it. And I'm, I'm kind of entering the, the world of it. Um, as an artist or as an, as an actor, and and you know I've, I've only been done. I've only been um, done really well um, with this genre, and it's been really good to me. And, and this is a perfect example. This Gotham job is, is is extremely juicy, and I really love doing it. And I love everything about it. So I guess I really have really positive things to say about it, um, mostly from my own selfish perspective. We talk about drawing in new fans, and I think you'll definitely do that with Gotham after playing Dr. Henry Wu on Jurassic World this last summer. So I can't help but think that playing Hugo Strange is kind of a very natural role for you. So do you see that there are any kind of similarities between those two characters? I really don't. I mean, I guess you can draw similarities between all kinds of characters. This is a really, really different kind of character. He's kind of much more of a no-holds-barred villain than a kind of respectable kind of, you know, with Henry Wu, I could say, um, I understand why he's doing what he's doing. He's, he really believes in the technology and he's pushing the technology forward. And, 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 and actually, a lot of those things are really true with, with Hugo Strange, but there's much more of a sense of insanity to the whole world of Arkham Asylum and everything that's going on in the, in the Gotham world. Um, uh, whereas, Jurassic World's kind of appeal is that it's grounded in a sense of um, 
pseudo-reality, you know, that one is much more of a fantasy than the other. Um, uh, well, I mean, of course, Jurassic, the Jurassic franchise is built upon a fantasy, but that fantasy is rooted in what appears to be a kind of day-to-day, day-to-day realness. Mm-hmm. Gotham is so full of, like, wonderful um, anachronisms and um, uh, it's just so vividly portrayed, like a comic, that the two of them are very different to me. What's similar to me is that these two guys have a grasp on some crazy technology and that they are so blind with their enthusiasm for it that they're, they're running, they're like sprinting through their lives, brandishing this like flag of how this thing that they're doing is going to change the world. And, and they, they can't see anything else around them. Now, I think Hugo Strange does see around him more of the, the havoc he wreaks, and, and Henry Wood is blind, is really blind to it. So that would be, I say, the difference. The other difference is that Hugo Strange actively enjoys the psychology and manipulating people and all that stuff. He loves, he just likes, likes it more. Oh, definitely. As a matter of fact, I mean, given Bruce Wayne's age in the series, the origin of Hugo Strange actually predates the origin even in the story for the comics. So do you feel like this gives you the chance to explain more about the roots of the classic villain that people might not have seen before? I think it does. I mean, I think the, the, one of the great things and, and interesting things about Gotham is that it is going to take things that are really firmly rooted in the Batman backstory and mess with them a little bit, or make them its own, which I uh, support, and lots of people are really, like, um, have really mixed feelings about, which I think is kind of wonderful. They, they kind of are drawn into this world, and it is kind of, in many ways, the world that they think it's going to be, and in many ways it's not. We're talking, of course, with B.D. Wong of Fox's Gotham, which returns Monday, February 29th at 8 p.m. on Fox. So Hugo Strange, for people who, as James mentioned, was actually Batman's first primary antagonist in the comics back in the 1940s. What do you hope fans both of the character himself and Gotham get out of your performance, B.D.? Well, you know, whenever an actor takes on a part that is really vivid to people, and it's not, and, you know, this part is interesting because he's not vivid to everyone. He's vivid to the die-hard, hardcore fans. And so you have to try really hard to give those fans what it is that they want, but the whole rest of the world doesn't care as much as they do. And the, whole, so, and, and the artist himself is trying to claim it in a way or make it his own, meaning me. And so... I am trying to um, give everybody what they want. And that's kind of fun, actually. I mean, I think the first thing was that I was hired and I wasn't a white guy. And that is a really big deal for um, a minority actor like me, it, living in a world where um, that 40s mentality is still is, you know, pervasive in the industry. And so just that kind of flip into a whole new territory of making him not a white person uh, was really a, a liberating thing. I, I really think that that's a very liberating thing. And so when you're coming up with, for example, his look and the way he looks, you're, you're drawing from um, the way he originally looked in those comics way, 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 way back. But you're kind of happy. You can't just 
you can't just make a, a Doctor Strange comic mask and put it on. You have to kind of make it fit you. And so that's what we did. We made Doctor Strange's look or Professor Strange's look uh, fit me. And um, I think it was really surprisingly successful. And other elements of it like that. You know, I don't care about how people think he talks or how he how they think he behaves. I feel like it's kind of clear in the writing um, what my task was. You know, when I when when I'm as an actor, you approach the writing and you look at it and you say, well, how is it that they want me to be? And that became very clear to me uh, after the first episode. It, it really sunk into a, a place that makes a lot of sense to me. Back in November, you posted a group of photos speaking about Hugo Strange's look, and you teased different looks and possibilities for Doctor Strange. Uh, what was your favorite part of doing those photos, and when you were in costume on set for the first time, what was the first thing that ran through your head? Uh, well, that was a long day of trying on all these different looks. Uh, as you said, they, they, um, I posted them all together so that fans could see all the different choices that they were making, and I was, you, know, you have to really be careful about spoilers and stuff like that, but since there were so many different looks, it was kind of legal because it was impossible to tell what he was really going to end up looking like. Mm-hmm. And it was super... The, the gothic, I mean, anybody who watches Gotham knows that the hair and makeup and special effects on the show are, like, world-class. And so these people were really game to try to come up with the right look. We ended up with a much more classic Hugo Strange look, and I was super happy with it. I mean, I... We were in conversations with the producers, really, really serious conversations about what choices to make. And some choices were way off the wall, way, way, way away from the original classic Hugo Strange look. But I really wanted the rose-colored glasses and the chin-strap beard, and, and I wanted to see how it looked on me, and I was really happy when they did it. And I agreed for the first few episodes to actually shave my head. And then they do uh, the makeup version of me having shaved my head, and, and, and it's worked out great. I think that everybody really likes the way he looked. And so, you know, when you walk onto the set for the first time, that your your behavior and your feelings are informed by how everyone um, uh, behaved towards you, and everybody was really great about it. So it was really fun. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's a fantastic look. It really is. I mean, it's perfect. We think it's perfect. Oh, oh, wow. You know, and that's the other thing. You know, you, you, you do live in fear or in nervousness about what the people out there think. You know, you, you, you do your best and you try to have as much fun as you can and all that stuff. But you never know how the fans are going to respond, whether they'll kind of, you know, turn against you or, or what. And so I really liked the way he looked. And I really liked the way he um, relates to the classic was strange, even though I don't really resemble the classic you know, me personally. And so, as a kind of transformation, it's really fun for me. Definitely. As a matter of fact, as a fan, when I think about Hugo Strange and his character's history of experimentation, I feel like he could be a real catalyst and a real game changer for Gotham going forward. So, I know this is going to be hard to answer without spoiling anything, but will we kind of see that come to fruition with the character as we see him on the show or for maybe a character that we've seen or maybe a past character? Yeah, you know, when you get... I've come on to do a nine-character arc. I think that's okay to say. And um, I am not... I have not come on as a series regular. And that opens the door for any number of things that could happen. In other words, I myself as the actor don't even really know what's going to happen. 
However, I'm wildly aware of the potential. And I'm wildly aware of the potential because of things I can't probably can't really say right now. But but as far as spoilers are concerned, the the things that I'm doing in the first few episodes appear to be a a, a huge door opening towards kind of more of the same or, or him being a catalyst and in and, and, and a lot of things that are going on with all of the various villains. And that's really exciting because I firmly believe also as an actor, I mean, I've seen it a million times, I've experienced it myself. You go, you walk into to the, to work one day and you read the next script and, oh, wow, I've been shot in the head. And then, you know, it's over. And you have no control over that. And so, of course, that possibility is always looming. And then the uh, counter possibility is that it can lead to incredibly uh, creative and interesting things. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of exciting because I'm at a point in my life now where I just let all of that go, like worrying about whether I'm going to get killed or not. I don't worry about it. I'm just kind of enjoying it in the moment, and that's really fun. Oh, exactly. And, BD, before we let you go, man, uh, where can people find you on social media? Oh, um, the, the Twitter handle is uh, BD underscore Wong. The Instagram handle is Wong BD. I have a BD Wong fan page on uh, Facebook. I think that's it, right? Yeah, I don't have anything else. Well, there's definitely a lot of places your fans are going to be able to find you. As a matter of fact, they'll find you Monday, February 29th at 8 p.m. on Fox when Gotham returns for the Rise of the Villain Season 2 for their mid-season premiere and a role that we think BD that you were born to play. It's B.D. Wong, Hugo Strange from Gotham on Fox. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Merci, oui, oui, thank you. Well, James, when it comes to experimentation, I just hope you know that I actually put you on Dr. Strange's list to be experimented on. Oh, no. Yeah, he's going to remove the part of your brain that has all the puns in it. Well, I mean, after the lack of sleep that I've gotten over the last year, thanks to my toddler, I think that I was bound to end up in Arkham sooner or later. Yeah, or Blackgate, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> but that was so awesome to have BD on the show, of course, to promote Gotham. And it's awesome, man. I mean, Hugo Strange, the way that BD looks in, in the show is fantastic. It's phenomenal. It's, yeah, it's I don't awesome. care what anybody says. He looks perfect. And, and I want to mention something he talked about, how he talked about he's glad that, you know, He's playing Doctor Strange as far as, you know, it's so different from, you know, of course, Doctor Strange was in the 1940s in the comics. And, again, we've always been people, hey, right person for the right job. And B.D. Wong, certainly, given his line of work and everything he's done, the right person for the right job. They nailed the look. He's going to be amazing as Hugo Strange. I can't tell you how excited I was when I saw that announcement because I'm like, this is the part, and I said it at the end of the interview, this is the part he was born to play. If you're going to put oh, him yeah. in a comic book role, this is the one. He is going to be fantastic. I mean, we've actually gotten a little sneak of the episode. He's great. Don't even worry about it. Monday, February the 29th, you're going to love seeing B.D. Wong as Doctor Strange. And we're going to see Mr. Freeze on Monday's episode as well. It's going to be fantastic. Exactly. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Don Nerdy Podcast, episode 100. It's in the books, man. We we did it. We did it. I mean, and we couldn't have done it without you guys. I mean, we don't get here without you. And, I mean, listening every week and going to our website, com. I mean, Nick, following us on social media as well. 
Yeah, and social media, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash downnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downnerdy757. I'm at Merck with one arm, M-E-R-C with one arm. The one is spelled out, for those of you who don't know. Uh, Mr. Witham, go ahead. I'm at James Ace Witham. As a matter of fact, one thing that people don't know about our Twitter handle, they'll say, why is it downnerdy757? Well, we're based in Virginia Beach, Virginia, so, as an homage to our home base here, 757 is the area code. There you go. That's why down at 757. After 100 episodes, now you know. Exactly. And, and, exactly. You know, it probably wasn't that hard to, to find out because we've kind of said it in different episodes throughout the time. But, hey, no, we're just, worldwide, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. But, I mean, you know, 100 episodes in, it's, it's such an honor to get here and Again, thank you to everybody who's listening, even if you were from with us from day one, and or even if you're just listening today. And we just got, you know, I want to just go down the list. You know, thanks to Courtland, Stephen Wagner from Marvel Animation. Thanks to BD Wong, and uh, thanks to Alex Irvine, of course, from Deus Ex for coming on, being a part of this special, special episode. It's such a great honor to talk to all these gentlemen today, and it was it was such such fun. Oh, it really was, and I mean, we're gonna get back to kind of. Normalcy with episode 101. We are going to have an episode 101, by the way. This isn't like our swan song or anything. We we just tried to pour our heart and soul into this 100th episode, and we really hope that uh, you enjoyed listening to it. And keep keep going, man. I mean, even if this is your first episode, doesn't matter. You found us, so just keep going, because let me tell you, we've got some huge things coming on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Exactly. Of course, before I sign off, or we sign off, I again just want to give a big shout-out and thank you to Bob over Fancy Escape Comps and Cards for sponsoring us since day one and believing in us. And just, you know, again, we're going to be at Tywar Comic-Con in May. And again, thanks to Bob for hooking us up and just bringing us along for the ride. It's been a blast, a great experience to go to that every year and just see all the fans that come up to our booth and just want pictures and ask for autographs. And I'm rambling! But that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We're 100 episodes in, and we have more to come. And with that, I leave you with this, as I do every week. Pray safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.